As a pilot, Gene Jordan became familiar with many of the towns in Ecuador, and he could tell when a town embraced the gospel of Jesus. He knows that the gospel transforms every part of life. The way the parents look at and treat their children, the way fathers treat their children, the way husbands treat their wives, the way they take pride in the community. They'll take rocks from the river and line the airstrip and paint them white to make it look pretty because now they have a reason to live. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and we are in our studio in Bartlesville, Oklahoma today with Gene Jordan. Gene is the Vice President of Personnel for MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. He is also a longtime missionary pilot in Ecuador. And uh, Gene, welcome to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you, Todd. It's great to be here. I uh, am really excited to have someone from MAF. I Part of my growing up years were in Papua New Guinea as a missionary kid, and the folks that flew us around were MAF pilots. So I uh, went to school with some MAF kids, flew with MAF pilots. So just it's a great privilege to have you here. I, I really have a great deal of respect and admiration for MAF and what you guys do around the world. For our listeners who maybe don't know anything about MAF, what do you do? What does MAF do in a place like Papua New Guinea or Ecuador or a mission field like that? Well, let me back up one step. Right after World War II, Missionary Aviation Fellowship of the U.S., of the U.K., and of Australia were all formed very, very close to each other. And now MAF International is a big group of different countries that work together. MAF US, MAF Canada are their own entities, and there are several others that are joined together, of which Australia is one under the MAF International banner. And so all of the MAFs use transportation and communication so that people who are isolated have a chance to hear that there's a God that loves them, We care for them in many physical ways, and we do that because we really want them to be spiritually transformed. Talk a little bit about the formation of MAF. Who who founded it, and and what was the need that they saw that said, wait a minute, airplanes are a good way to meet that need? Well, you, again, have to go back in history. World War II was just ending, and World War II, aviation just exploded, Uh, the technology— And many of the young men that were trained in the war effort were believers, were Christians. And as the war was winding down and ending, they're thinking, okay, what what do we do? This is all we know how to do. Could we use aviation to further the gospel around the world? So a very simple premise, and for MAFUS, started by sending an airplane down to the southern jungles of Mexico to serve Wycliffe Bible translators. And very ironically, and I think it's great as we look back, our first MAF pilot was a lady. Betty Green came out of the Women Auxiliary Service Pilots, the WASPs, and uh, she delivered airplanes. She flew airplanes that 
tiptoed banners that the gunners shot at. She was just a great, great pilot, and she was the first MAF U.S. pilot to keep us guys just a little humble. Wow, I did not know that. That is a good, a good piece of information. You know, Gene, most of our listeners are familiar with the missionary story from Ecuador. It's not an MAF story, but it's the story of five men who gave their lives for the gospel. Uh, in fact, their names are inscribed on the martyr's wall outside our building right here in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. That's a lot more than a story to you. That's a lot more than something you thumbed through Life magazine and, and saw some pictures. Talk a little bit about your connection to that story and how that's so personal to you. Well, Todd, I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit because it is very much an MAF story. Nate Saint oh, was the true. first pilot point. in Ecuador. <laughs> he started operating there in 1947. He was serving a Christian mission in many lands, Christian Missionary Alliance, Gospel Missionary Union, and he was told of a group of people that had never had a friendly contact with the outside world. In fact, he was told, don't fly over their territory because if you have any engine problem and you have to go down in the jungle, you're going to be in trouble. You won't well, come back. All that did was was drive him to find those people. And long story short, he did find communities where they lived. He started doing overflights. He recruited four other missionaries with him from the Brethren Missionary and from Gospel Missionary Union. And uh, they started dropping gifts, both free fall and through a basket that was connected to the airplane. The Indians started sending gifts back. Nate landed on a beach nearby their community. And they did have a couple days of friendly contact. But a lie was told. Fear grew. The Indians came and killed all five of those guys, the MEF pilot and all of his companions. Now, that was 1956. That was before you started at MAF, but you were in Ecuador. That was January 8th, 1956. My parents worked with a Christian broadcasting station, HCJB, in Quito, Ecuador, uh, shortwave broadcasting. And so HCJB was kind of a hub for the mission world in Ecuador. It was a big organization. And so my parents knew all of those five guys and their families, and I grew up always knowing about MAF. I, I can't remember not knowing about Uncle Nate and Aunt Marge and a little yellow airplane. And um, when that happened, of course, I don't remember it, but I have a picture at home and um, on the wall of my office at MAF of me with Nate and that little yellow airplane probably about a year and a half before he was killed. So I've always known the story. During my high school years, I would go down to the MAF base and shell, load the airplanes, fuel the airplanes, wash the airplanes off at the end of the day, always hoping for a seat, a ride out <laughs> into the jungle. And I got a lot of rides. And that those summers convinced me that this was something that I could do to help build the church, in this case, in eastern Ecuador. Now, I didn't know it. I joined MAF, and they sent me right back to Ecuador. So I grew up there and then went back and flew there for 22 years, which was very, very special. So I was able to watch the church among the Waurani grow. And uh, some of the grandkids now are just wonderful church leaders. And it's just exciting to watch them grow up and then take a leadership role in the church. Having grown up 
alongside some of those people like Steve Saint that lost his father that day, uh, some of the wives you knew well, what did you learn from them or learn about God's faithfulness from being there and watching them up close? Because, you know, I think most of us would think if your husband got killed on the mission field, you would just come back to America. And many of them stayed there. They kept doing the ministry for years and years after that. What are some of the things that you learned from watching them and watching the way they responded to that situation? Well, I think the first way to answer that would be that many of them were just aunts and uncles to us. We all called everybody aunt and uncles. So there was Aunt Marge and Aunt Barb, and they they were just mothers. And I don't think as a young child I really realized. I knew what had happened, but I didn't realize. So I grew up with Stevie and Kathy and Beth and Jerry and Mikey McCulley and Val Elliott, all those kids. And, And probably it wasn't until later... As I had my own family and started to really understand uh, what those families had gone through, I had the privilege several times to to fly Elizabeth Elliot back into the area that she had lived, and and I've heard her speak several different times in different ways, and never have I ever heard her say that that she's mad at God or or there was a mistake made or it, she just totally, totally trusts what God did through her husband and her family. Uh, Valerie came to MAF last year and spoke, and that that same theme was very, very strong. Sure, I would have loved to have grown up with a dad, but what I know of him and his commitment, his sold out to God, is just something that drives my life. And uh, Aunt Marge, as I grew up with, with her around the mission station my parents were with, because she ended up marrying the president of that mission and was around for many, many years. Just a quiet, quiet confidence that God does not make mistakes through heartbreak. What's happening among that people group where those guys gave their lives? Well, there is a church among the Wow, the Wow Donnie, who used to be known as the Alka. There is a church, but it's a church very much like any church here in the U.S. There are those who have gotten into Scripture, studied it, starting to understand it. They have the New Testament and part of the Old Testament in their own language. And so there are those that that, that want to grow in the faith and understand. There's those that come to church when it's convenient. Maybe there's going to be a special church something. So they come. And there's those that say, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. But to me, the most exciting thing is when the killing took place and Elizabeth and Rachel went back in and others started working and the community started to understand about a God who loved them, their lives changed. And their children lived in unprecedented peace. They were killing themselves to extinction before. And now their children had a chance to live in peace. And their children, the grandchildren, had a chance to start getting an education and, and, and giving back to their own communities. And I flew young people around when they were just little, little grade schoolers and high schoolers and little snotty-nosed kids. And now those kids are the young adults leading in the church. And that's been fabulous to see. So we're into the third generation. There is a tendency to drift back into the old ways of some, 
but I have seen these young leaders stand up and say, no, our forefathers lived that way. We are not going to live that way, not because I say so, but because God tells us through his carving, through his book, that we are not to live that way. And to see the grandchildren who are now young adults, like my kids, taking leadership in the church and guiding their own people, that's just fabulous because that's the way the church should work. And it's interesting to hear how the gospel message doesn't just change individual lives. It changes the whole culture. It, it works its way in and changes the way people live. Even the people who don't believe or don't read the Bible, their lives were changed too because the gospel came to their people. Absolutely. And I can illustrate that very quickly. Todd, if you were to come with me and to fly to 10 different communities in southeastern Ecuador. If you could keep them straight in your mind, that the one was the one that the airstrip ended at the river. The other one was the one that had a mountain at the end of it. The other one was the one that had a volleyball net stretched across it that they had to take down before we landed. If you could keep them straight, we would come back to the hangar. I would give you a list of the airstrips and say, now, which communities have accepted the gospel? Which communities have accepted that God has something for them? you would get a very high score on that test because it changes the community. The way the parents look at and treat their children, the way fathers treat their children, their way husbands treat their wives, the way they take pride in the community. They'll take rocks from the river and line the airstrip and paint them white to make it look pretty because now they have a reason to live way beyond just existing. You can see it in the community when they choose. Now, there are communities that say, we do not want the missionaries in here. Now, if we have somebody sick, we want the airplane to come. Right. But we don't want this. <laughs> and and you, can, you, can, you can just see and feel the difference in the communities. Wow. It's, Jesus is still changing people's lives. That, that's the good news. And uh, it's great to, to know that that's still marching forward and going to people who've never heard. Life on the mission field is always an adventure, it seems like. What are some of the challenges that you've had to overcome over those years where, again, where you saw God step in and do something or he gave you the strength to get through it? What are some of the challenging times that you look back on? You know, you, you mentioned, Todd, that it is an adventure, but really we try to make all of our flights as boring as possible. <laughs> Because a boring I flight— I like boring airplane rides. Yeah, I'm a big it, fan of boring airplane rides. A boring flight that is safe is a good flight. In Ecuador, we, we faced a lot of quickly changing weather. And that was something we always fought on a daily basis, trying to get the job done amongst bad weather. But, you know, that, that, that's just part of the job. Probably the, the hardest thing was the separation from family. I remember my wife's parents saying that as our kids came along, like Abraham did, she put those grandchildren on an altar and said, I, I have to let go. I want them here with me, but God has called you to Ecuador, so I have to give them up. Now that I am a grandfather, I understand that now. And families that, that are separated and do it because of a call and God in their life, it, it's a big thing to give up. But you know what? It, it's really not much of a big thing when you think about people who have never heard of a God that loves them. In the Ecuadorian rainforest, most of the communities feared the spirit world. 
They feared the darkness. They did not understand that there was a God who created them, who loved them, who gave his son for them. And so it's a small price to pay to watch the church develop, to watch people understand how much they are cared for, how much they are loved, and it changes their life. So anything that we went through of the lack of electricity or away from family or rain and weather and this and that and the other, it really pales in comparison to one day being together and, and greeting people say, do you remember me from Morete Cocha? It's like, uh, yeah, maybe, but uh, your airplane brought God's word to us. Where do you think that love for people came from in your heart? Did, did you just always have that, or did God do something to put that in there? Because there are a lot of Christians and people like us, maybe people who are comfortable in America, who say, yeah, you know, I feel really bad about those guys that don't know, but— I'm pretty comfortable here. I don't want to go tell them. Well, for me, that's a very easy answer because my parents were missionaries in Ecuador at this radio station, and my mom could not have any children. And so they had a doctor friend in Michigan that was part of their financial support, and uh, he delivered a a baby of a very young 16-year-old mother. Everything was done quietly. And he wondered if this baby could not be put up for adoption. The mother said yes. So my parents got a telegram in Quito, Ecuador, in uh, December of 1952. I had been born in September. And the telegram was very short. Adoption assured. Stop. Come quickly. Stop. (laughs) So they went up to Michigan, picked me up, and brought me right back to Ecuador in January 1953. So... I grew up in a mission community. I grew up watching a lot of people serve others. I grew up knowing about Uncle Nate and the airplane. And so what I saw and what I experienced on many different fronts, it's like, yeah, this is what life is all about. It's not about me. It's about how God put me together. And I'm not the world's best pilot, but I was safe over many thousands of hours of flying. And we helped build the church. We help bring people into the hospital for physical care. Because when you help them physically and then you turn around and say there's a God that loves them, yeah, you know, you loved me and you're doing it because he loves you. It starts to make sense. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time of investing in people's lives, investing in a community, and just giving back what God gave you. And That's what I see my kids doing now, and that's what gets pretty exciting. It does get very exciting. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Gene Jordan. He is the Vice President of Personnel for MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. Gene, part of your job is to help MAF find new people to come and work for them and and go to these places and fly the airplanes and manage the technology. What are you looking for in a person who says— hey, I want to come work for MAF? Well, you have to be technically proficient. If you're going to come fly for MAF, you're going to do a technical evaluation flight. So once you have passed the tech evaluation, then we do our own training with you to get you overseas. But more than that, more than the technical, is a sense that God is calling you to do this. Because, you know, the flying is challenging, but... It's not the flying. It's what the airplane does. The airplane is just a 
tool and you get involved with the communities and you get involved in people's lives and you show them through your life the, the way you treat them, the way you interact with them, it's over time where they say, these people care for us. In today's world, a lot of our flying is done with the National Church. When I started flying in the late 70s, the missionary movement that came out after World War II started to build churches, and now we're into the third and fourth generations, and we fly many more national missionaries than we do missionaries from another country. We fly their own people to their own people. They don't need to learn the language. They don't have a ton of luggage. They're good with a little sack with some stuff in it, and away they go, and they are much more effective in many ways than, than we were. Yet, I honor those who came before us, laid a foundation, and now the, the local church is building on that. So you have to be technically proficient, but you have to be somebody who has a call in your life that says, God is calling me to do this beyond the hardship, beyond the frustration, beyond the danger, because we operate in countries where, you know, they, they, they don't like us because we're Americans, but they absolutely do not like us because we are Christ followers. This world is not a friendly world anymore. And I think a lot of that is because the devil senses that God is doing work around the world. And we're working in countries we would not have dreamed that we would be working in 20 years ago, 10 years ago, using communications, using airplanes to tell people that Jesus loves them. So I'm... 17, 18, 19 years old, God's starting to talk to me. Hey, I want you to go to Afghanistan. I want you to go to Ecuador. I want you to go serve me overseas. What advice would you give me as a, again, 17, 18, 19-year-old who is starting to feel that this is what God is calling me to do? How do I get ready? Okay, if you're 17 years old, you probably don't have all your flight ratings yet. <laughs> Unless your dad was an airline pilot or something, and you flew off your backyard. But, but I would counsel you, there are several schools that have programs specifically designed for missionary aviation. Now, you can get your pilot's license anywhere. But these programs from day one train that one day you're going to be out in some remote area. You don't have a support system like the airlines have here. You are going to make all the decisions. You're responsible for your own safety. And those that, that, that way of thinking about flying starts early on. So I would say look up a school that prepares you for missionary flying. And then you need to learn to fly that plane well. So you have to be technically proficient. And then I would say start right now learning to feed yourself spiritually because you're going to be in an area of the world where there may not be a well-established church. You're in a different language. It's different, and you have to be able to maintain yourself and feed yourself spiritually. If you don't, you're going to have a spiritual accident. You're going to say, you know, I can't do this. You may be proficient with the aluminum airplane, but I just can't do this because I cannot maintain my my spiritual identity. So learn to feed yourself spiritually, be technically proficient, and then start praying, God, guide me every day, even to my life partner. My wife wanted to be a teacher of missionary kids at a missionary kids school. So it was great that God brought us together in college, and we were able to serve together. We want a couple that's committed to work together, to use technology, to use communications 
to tell others about Jesus. So specialize in it. We've been talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Gene Jordan. He is the Vice President of Personnel for MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. You can learn more about them at maf.org, maf.org. You can also listen again to this interview at vomradio.net, as well as all our other episodes. I mentioned uh, Gene's daughter, Dory, has been on talking about a trip to China. But all of our episodes are available at vomradio.net. Gene, I can tell you're passionate about what you do, and we love those kind of people. That comes through the microphone. It comes through the radio. Thank you for spending this time with us today on VOM Radio. Very, very happy to do so. And if there's anybody out there listening that wants to fly an airplane out in an isolated area, yeah, we need young kids. It's a young man's game or a young woman's game. Or a young woman's game. Our guests next week say that Pakistan, which is 96% Muslim, is a perfect place to share the gospel. Find out why when Fassel and Carrie John are with us next week, right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.